You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Hey, if you have Bibles, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2 this morning. Uh, page 1021 uh, is where you can find, find that text. This past week, this past Wednesday, uh, began the season of Lent. Uh, important season in the life of the church in the Christian calendar. During Lent, uh, we come face to face with our mortality. But we don't only, co- only come face to face with our mortality, as, as Mallory was explaining this morning so well. We also come face to face with the reason for our mortality, which is our sin. Because sin is a conse- because death is a consequence of sin. Lent is a time. And we do this all the, all the time in our lives, but we specifically focus on this during the season of Lent, where we ask God to search us and know us. We ask God to bring us and to bring our sin into the light. Anthony Wright was up here preaching last week from the end of 1 John chapter 1. And as he preached last week, it's, it's as we step into the light, it's as we repent and confess our sins, that we find God to be faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so during our Ash Wednesday service just a few days ago, uh, we talked about depravity. We talked about, in other words, what we need saving from. And we tried to follow up on Anthony's call last week to get really specific about some of our sins and to bring those specific sins into the light. This morning, as we pick up our sermon series in 1 John chapter 2, we're going to get to see something more about how incredible our salvation is. Into our pervasive depravity, Jesus brings comprehensive salvation. He goes before us to make a way for our salvation, but as we're going to read this morning, he also comes after us when we sin. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into this morning's text. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit among us now as we meditate upon the work of Jesus. Prepare by the power of your Holy Spirit. Prepare our minds to hear your word. Move in our hearts to accept, to believe what we hear, and then purify our will to obey you in faith and in joy. And we pray all of these things through Christ our Savior. Amen. Invite you to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is 1 John chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him, truly, the love of God is perfected or completed. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is God's word. Here's the the big idea for this text that we're in today. One of the best ways for us to experience assurance that we really know God, that we're really known by God, One of the best ways to experience that is by obeying. But we disobey. 
And so we need something more than our obedience. We need an advocate. And what John is writing here is that we have that advocate in none other than Jesus Christ himself. So this morning, we're going to walk through this passage backward. Uh, We're going to start looking at verses 3 through 6, and then verse 2, and then we'll close by looking at verse 1. As we do, we're going to talk about assurance, and then atonement, and then finally, an advocate. Assurance, atonement, and an advocate. So first, let's talk about assurance. Uh, If you were with us a couple weeks ago as we began this series, you might recall John is writing this letter so that you may know. So that Christians, in other words, may have all of the assurance, all of the confidence that is held out to them as sons and daughters of God. How do we experience that kind of assurance? How can we know that we know or that we are known? One of the primary ways John points out here in verses 3 through 6 is through our obedience. It's when we obey God's commands, when we actually do what God says. So in verse 3, obedience is a matter of sincerity or genuineness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said it this way. He said, only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. In other words, the, the, the proof that we actually believe something is if we actually do it, if we actually put it into practice, if we actually live in light of it. It's kind of like this, of course, you know, was never you, but may have applied to me at some point in my young life. It's like when your parents used to have to tell you to take a shower. I'm sure that was not you, right? You never had to have that happen. But if you did, and your parents said, take a shower, and you said, yeah, that's a good idea. I agree. I need a shower. But then you went outside, or you, you know, flipped on the TV and said, or it's like if your parents said, hey, take a shower, and you said, hmm, yeah, I'm going to do a deep dive on that. I wonder what the, the Greek word for shower is. Uh, you know, in the original Hebrew, there's actually four different kinds of stink. Maybe there's something I can find if I really get into and parse out the meaning of, of that. Or I'm going to start a small group. We're going to talk about the best strategies for how to shower, for how to stay clean and not be smelly. You know, actually, there's a great new podcast out. Some people are talking all about this daily shower thing. What a routine that is. I think we're going to listen to that for a while. When do you actually believe your mom and dad? It's when you get your smelly self in the shower. And all this other stuff has a semblance of belief. It has this, this air of belief, but it's not sincere unless, unless you actually do it, unless you actually obey. In verse 4, John moves on to talk about obedience as a matter of integrity. Integrity. If we say we know God, but we don't keep his commandments, if we don't even care that we're not keeping his commandments, we're liars. One of the biggest stated reasons why people don't want to consider Christianity, why people who aren't Christians don't even want to consider becoming followers of Jesus is because of the hypocrisy of Christians. It's it's when Christians say one thing and then blatantly or brazenly do something completely opposite of that. Now, in one sense, each and every one of us is hypocritical because we're all imperfect. None of us perfectly lives up to the standard that we claim to follow as we claim to follow Christ. None of us lives up to that perfectly. But if a pastor preaches a sermon about faithful financial stewardship, and then later that week gets caught embezzling the church's money, or if you're a Christian neighbor who's always really vocal about how society has become so sexually perverse and how how broken things are in the world right now, if they get arrested for child pornography, 
right? These brazen, blatant examples. Where's the integrity in that? That kind of hypocrisy calls belief into question. If someone else did that, you would have the thought in your mind, does that person actually believe the stuff that they say? Does that person actually live in light of all the stuff that they, they talk about? The same thing is true for ourselves. Same thing is true for ourselves. If we say we know God, but we're not seeking to keep his commands, then we're lying. We're lying. In verse 5, John moves on to talk about obedience, perfecting or completing the love of God. And it's not that, that God's love is somehow incomplete or imperfect without us, but his love for us is meant to fuel a response of our love back for him. It's meant to bring that whole cycle to completion. We're going to talk more about love specifically next week and actually throughout this series. It's one of, it's one of John's favorite topics that he touches on multiple times over the course of, of this letter. But for today, for this text, John is saying, if we know God, we love him. And if we love God, we're actually going to listen to him. We're actually going to do what, what he says. And then in verse 6, John writes that obedience is also about becoming like Jesus. If we say we belong to Jesus, if we say we abide in him, we find our, our life in him, then we're also going to walk in the way he walked. We're not just going to look to Jesus to be our cosmic get-out-of-jail-free card so we can do whatever we want. We're actually going to try to live in the way he lived, try to do the things that, that he did. Now, knowing God is a deeply relational thing. He invites us to know him. He invites us to commune with him in, in this relationally intimate way. But sometimes we make that so ethereal. We make that so ambiguous. We end up making knowing God and being known by him more complicated than it, than it has to be. Sometimes we do that with focusing too much on emotions. We make knowing God and being known by God primarily about emotion. How intensely we feel a desire for Jesus in any given moment. Or we might make it about receiving special insights and special direction. We might only feel like we know God and are known by God when we feel like he is directing every single step of our lives. And he's telling us, do I go out to Chipotle for lunch today or do I go to Panera? And if he doesn't give us an answer, we might feel distant from God and removed from God. The reality is, is that God has spoken so much. It's not that he doesn't continue to guide us and, and, and illumine and bring his word to light by his Holy Spirit, but, but God has spoken. And sometimes we overly complicate this and we also start to contradict what God has already said if we focus too much on that. If, if you hear God speak and it contradicts what he has already commanded you to do in the Bible, you didn't hear God speak. You didn't hear God speak. If God told you, for example, if you're a Christian, God told you to marry someone who's not a Christian, that wasn't God. That you didn't have like a special revelation that was only between you and God. And he said, you know what? You though, it's okay. You go do that. Or if you're a Christian and God said, it's okay to cheat on your income taxes. That wasn't God who said that. I know that's tempting. That wasn't God who said that. John, this letter of John was written so that you may know. How do you know that you are known by God. I love how David Jackman, author and scholar, puts it. He says it this way. He says, The ultimate proof is not in the heightened emotion of exciting worship, but in the daily, detailed, disciplined obedience by which our characters are being transformed into the image of the God we love. Not the emotion, not the special revelation, but the daily, detailed, disciplined obedience 
that is forming us more and more in the way Jesus walked into the example of Jesus. All that to say, assurance comes through obedience. When we do what God says, we will gain this deep sense that we actually know him and are known by him. Okay, so that's it for this morning. Uh, Go in peace, perfectly obey the law of God. Next week, we'll all come back. We'll pat each other on the back for just a great week of execution, right? We'll all have perfect assurance, perfect confidence. No, right? Wouldn't it be discouraging if that's all we had here in this letter, here in the New Testament? We don't always obey, do we? Do we? No, we don't always obey. We disobey all the time. We do that by both our commissions and our omissions. And John has already made that really evident. We read it last week. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. So we do sin. We do disobey. Which means, friends, that we need something more than obedience. We need an infinitely better means of assurance than how well you and I can keep the commands of God in any given moment. We need a source of assurance outside of ourselves and our own ability to obey. And because we don't always obey, even though we know we're supposed to, we need someone who can actually deal with our disobedience. We need someone who can put away our sin. If we're going to experience assurance at all, we actually must first experience atonement. Atonement. So second, let's talk about atonement. Look again at verse two. John writes, he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Depending on your translation, verse two might say propitiation. It might also say atoning sacrifice. Either way, it is talking about a sacrifice which effectively deals with our sin. Propitiation specifically means a sacrifice which satisfies the justice of God, which which puts away the wrath of God. It takes God's wrath against sin, which would otherwise fall upon us as the, the perpetrators, as the sinners, and it pours it out on the sacrifice instead. And what John is saying here is that the sacrifice is Jesus. Notice John is not saying that Jesus is the propitiator. He is that. He's the one. He also serves as the high priest, but he is the propitiation. He himself is the sacrifice. His sacrifice, his body offered up, his blood poured out on the cross is what makes atonement. It is what makes the wrong of our sin right. It's what deals with our sin and God's justice against it. In recent history, some scholars and and authors and leaders have, have balked at this idea of Jesus as propitiation. Uh, Some have even called it things like divine child abuse. Some have said that, you know, the early Christians were really just too influenced by other pagan religions and pagan worldviews around them, and they borrowed their concepts of propitiation and kind of imported them into the Christian story. But the biblical picture of Jesus as propitiation is different in really significant ways. I think it's worth just spending just a moment to talk about those. First, the Bible never speaks about God's about God being uncontrolled or arbitrary in his anger. So, so sometimes this picture we get is that God is kind of like the guy on our intramural team, that like when something goes wrong, he becomes a rage monster. Like you ever, you ever played sports with somebody like that? 
You might be that person if you don't know that there's another person on the team. Like the rage monster, okay? Sometimes we have this impression of God that he's the rage monster, and we messed up in the garden, and ever since, he's just storming around trying to just squash people. But God is never uncontrolled or arbitrary in his anger. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. His anger and wrath, whenever it is applied, it is purposeful. It is directed. And then second, and even more importantly, in the pagan concept of propitiation, the deity is always the reluctant one. The the deity does not want to be kind, does not want to be merciful or gracious to the people. And so the people have to find a way to appease the deity. They have to find a way to appease divine reluctance. In the biblical picture of propitiation, who's the reluctant one? I am. (laughs) I am. You are. Not God. In the biblical picture, it is God himself who takes the initiative to overcome our reluctance. The Father and the Son and the Spirit together, they initiate, they enact this work where Jesus takes on flesh and comes into this world so that he might then become the propitiation for our sins. So, So if atonement were up to the reluctant, it would never happen. If atonement were up to the disobedient, those who know we're supposed to follow God's commands but don't, it would never happen. If atonement were up to us, there would be no atonement. And so praise God, atonement, propitiation, is Jesus' work, not ours. The only truly obedient one is also the propitiation, is also the atoning sacrifice. And because he is, he also then qualifies to be our advocate our advocate. So third, let's talk about Jesus as our advocate. Look there again at verse one. John writes, my little children, such a, such like a spiritual dad term. (laughs) I love that. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What's an advocate? What's an advocate? An advocate is someone who speaks up on behalf of another. It's someone who goes to bat for someone else. In a courtroom setting, uh, advocates are often appointed for someone who is incapable of doing that for himself or herself. Children often, even in the foster care system, often have court-appointed advocates because they, they can't speak up for themselves. They can't represent themselves in the way that they need to. And Christian What John is saying here is that you have an advocate and it is Jesus Christ, the righteous. In in God's courtroom, it's not left up to you to advocate for yourself. You have an infinitely better advocate than that, and it's Jesus. So let's seek to understand this as much as we can this morning. Okay, Jesus' sacrifice, his propitiation, was once for all. And you, if your faith is in him and his finished work, you are saved by his sacrifice. You are reconciled to God through that finished work. You are justified. You are declared righteous before God. So you do not need to be declared righteous again. You do not need another justification, another propitiation. What you do need is the continual application of Jesus' finished work to your present moment-by-moment life. His sacrifice, his work on the cross was sufficient to deal with every sin that you will ever commit in your life, which is mind-boggling because there's just so many more that I haven't even thought of yet, ways that I'm going to sin in the rest of my life, even though I don't want to. Every one of them that I will ever commit. But as we commit them, we need Jesus' work to count 
for each instance of that sin. We need his past atoning work applied, brought to bear in the present moment, the present instances of our sin. And that's what John means when he says Jesus is our advocate. See, in Hebrews, we read that Jesus is always interceding for us. There's this constant act that Jesus is always speaking to God the Father about us. Advocating, though, on the other hand, is not constant. It's occasional. It's not always. It's when we sin. Hebrews also says that Jesus is our great high priest, the one who has gone before us. Jesus has, in other words, made a way. He's made the only way for us to be reconciled with the Father. So a ton of the work that Jesus does, a ton of the work that our salvation hangs upon, that Jesus does, is proactive. He goes before us. He does all of this work. But what John is saying here is that as our advocate, Jesus' work is also reactive. Or probably a better word would be responsive. He is also responding to our sin as it happens. He has not only gone before, Jesus has come after. That's how comprehensive his work, his salvation is. Into our pervasive depravity, Jesus brings a comprehensive salvation. He is the one who goes before you, and he's also the one who comes after you. John Bunyan of Pilgrim's Progress fame, uh, he also wrote a bunch of other good books. He's known for that one, but he's written a bunch of other good stuff too. And he wrote one about Jesus as our advocate. In it, he puts it this way. He says, Christ as priest goes before. Christ as an advocate comes after. Christ as a priest continually intercedes. Christ as an advocate in case of great transgressions pleads. Christ as priest has need to act always, but Christ as advocate sometimes only. Christ as priest acts in times of peace but Christ as advocate in times of broils, turmoils, and sharp contentions. Hear the difference in that? It's incredible how comprehensive the scope of his work is. He's not only the one who intercedes and goes before, he's the advocate who comes after. And I hope you see this morning how this is an infinitely better source of assurance than our own salvation, than our own obedience, than our own obedience. Jesus has made atonement for your sin before you ever sin before any of us were even alive to commit the first sin we ever committed, Jesus made a way to deal with it. But when you sin, as you sin, he does not leave you to speak up for yourself. He does not leave you to try to take his finished work and apply it to your present life in the moment. He does that for you too. It's really good news for us because you and I, when we sin, and we're left to ourselves, we almost always respond with either defensiveness or despair. Sometimes we're, we're defensive, which in a sense is to advocate for ourselves. It's to, it's to appoint ourselves our own advocate. And, and practically that looks like minimizing our sin. It wasn't that big of a deal. Other people do worse things. It looks like excusing our sin. I was tired. I was stressed out. Or it looks like using some of our good deeds to try to advocate for our bad ones. Gosh, I know I messed up there, but yesterday I did a lot of really good things. I went out of my way to serve people. That's defensiveness. That's self-advocacy. And if you've tried it like I have, you know it doesn't actually lead to assurance at all. It doesn't. It doesn't lead to assurance. Why not? Because it's not fully honest. It's not fully honest. And how can we ever know if the the good things that we do, the good thoughts we think are enough to outweigh the bad ones? 
See, if you, if you go climbing, or if you're someone that likes high ropes courses, you never actually know the strength of the rope. You never will have real assurance, full assurance that you are safe until that rope is holding all of your weight. Until you stop trying to help a little bit. Until you stop trying to hold even a little bit of, your, of yourself up. It's only when you quit trying to help at all do you know, do you actually have deep assurance that you are held. And if it's not defensiveness, then we often respond with despair. Despair. We get so overwhelmed by our sin that we're not only unable to advocate for ourselves, but we find no advocate anywhere. I think this is especially true with sin that has more external consequences or certain kinds of sin that have a a harsher stigma. Sin is sin in the eyes of God, but certain sins have more ripple effects in the world and certain sins have a greater stigma that they carry. And especially when we sin in those ways, we're prone to despair. How, how could I be a son or daughter of God and have done that? How, how, how could God forgive me? With all the grace and mercy he's shown me, how could he forgive me for doing that? And of course, when we despair, there, there's no assurance to be found there either. With defensiveness, when you're, when you're advocating for yourself, you might, you're trying to create some assurance and, and you might kid yourself for a little while that you have a little bit, even if it doesn't satisfy. But with despair, no one is advocating. And so there's, there's no assurance. I want to invite you this morning to think of a sin that you are experiencing in your life right now. A sin or a sin pattern. And this is going to be hard, but I'm going to trust that God's going to do important and, and necessary and good work in our lives through this. Not, not something, don't think of something that you used to struggle with. Don't think of something that, you know, was part of your story before you became a Christian. A lot of us have stories like that. Think of something that you are tempted by today. Something you've come face to face, face with even this week. How did you respond? How did you respond? Were you more inclined to be defensive? Or were you more inclined to despair? Did you rise up and try to advocate for yourself in that moment? Or did you abandon any hope of an advocate? Did you just wallow in the reality of like, how could God possibly love me? Instead of either of those, op- those responses, what would it look like, friend, for each of us to see Jesus as, as our advocate, as your advocate? Because what John is saying here is that you are never without one. You're never without one. It's not when you're at your best and you've cleaned up your life sufficiently that Jesus advocates for you and says, yeah, he's a pretty good guy. She's a pretty good girl. You should listen to her. You should forgive her. It's when we're at our worst. It's when we sin that we have an advocate with the Father. And you need not ever advocate for yourself because you have a far better advocate than that. Your advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. The one who atoned for your sin before you ever committed it is the one who advocates for you even when you do. As a practical way of of applying this to your own life, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Take that sin, that sin pattern that's, that's on your mind now, And with that in your mind, sometime in the next couple days, sometime before you forget, take a few minutes and actually write out your answers, your responses to these questions. Two questions. One, what would Jesus say to you right now? As you experience that sin, as you give into that sin, what would Jesus say to you right now? What would he say to you about about that sin? 
And then second, what would Jesus say to God the Father about your sin? What would his advocacy on your behalf sound like? Take some time the next couple days, write that out. I really hope that you see the advocacy of Jesus is for you specifically in the things that you experience in your own life, not just generically for some people somewhere, but for you. And then here's the really vulnerable thing. Share that, what you write out in those answers, share that with your Bible study group or share that with a friend or a family member, someone that's been walking with Jesus for a period of time. Let's be a church full of people that help one another really look to Jesus as our advocate, our advocate. Friends, you are meant, and John is writing the whole letter for this reason, you are meant to experience assurance that you know and are known by God. And and your obedience really is one of the primary ways you can experience that assurance. So let's take John at his word. Let's be people who obey. Let's be people who do what God says. But because sometimes we won't, because sometimes we will disobey, Know for certain this morning that there is an infinitely better means of assurance held out to you. In Jesus, you have atonement for your disobedience and you have an advocate with the Father. And so today, and and really throughout this Lenten season, rather than advocating for yourself and becoming defensive, be completely honest about your sin. Don't minimize it. Don't excuse it. Don't seek to outperform it by doing more good things than bad. And rather than despairing, and living your life as if obedience were the only means of assurance, as if there were no advocate to be found. May you lift your eyes and see Jesus Christ, the righteous advocating for you. He is at this very moment at the right hand of the father. And when you sin, when you sin, he is your advocate. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God of mercy, you are full of tenderness and compassion You have been unbelievably gracious to us through the work of Jesus. You have gone before us. You have come after us. I pray now as we prepare to come to your table that we would see again our desperate need for a very present Christ. Jesus, your work was sufficient to pay for all of the sins we'll ever commit, but we need that work applied to each and every sin we do. We need your work applied to us today. So I pray that as we come this morning, seeing the cost seeing that you are the propitiation, you gave yourself up, body and blood, to the sacrifice on our behalf to take away the wrath of God, to take away the justice of God. That we, as we see the cost of that, we would also come with great rejoicing that you have, through your work, made a way for us. And when we sin, you advocate for us. We need your advocacy today. We need your grace today. Help us to come now and to feast upon your finished work at this table. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.